Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Give me a second here as I get everything powered up. So, I hope you remember that every so often when I get up and get the opportunity to preach, we've been working through a series on biblical leadership, specifically focused on uh, the qualifications of our uh, pastors, and that's in large part because, one, it's edifying to know, uh, but two, practically, because we have Jeffrey and Donnie who are uh, desiring to enter into pastoral ministry, and we have an obligation as God's people to... uh, to sort of uh, check them out, to, to vet them, if you will, to, to uh, make sure that they are fit and, and able and called to the task, uh, qualified. And so we, we spent the last uh, several uh, sermons going through the qualifications of a pastor in First Timothy, but today we will, uh, we've, we've finished that up. So today what we're going to do is we'll look at several different passages and talk less about the qualifications that a pastor has to have, talk more about what a pastor does. So if you have a, a bulletin on the back, you'll find the outline there that you can fill in. But I don't think I sent Jeffrey the title, but if you, if you like titles for things, I'm just calling this Four Essential Tasks of a Pastor, Part 1, because we're only going to cover the first two of those four today. So uh, you'll see on the bulletin there, it's laid out where we've got two main points. The first one has, I think, four subpoints that we'll fill in, and then the second point has three subpoints that you can fill in. And write down, I think the scripture references are on there, so you can come back to those later and hopefully be edified by that. But we'll begin in Acts chapter 20, uh, looking at verse 17 and then verses 28 through 30. But before we go there, let me just pray as we get started here. Father, as we gather this morning, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. I want to thank you, God, for the people that are gathered here with us. And I pray that your spirit, O oh God, more importantly than, than me being here, more importantly than, than our brothers and sisters being united together in this room, I pray that Christ would be present through the Spirit today. God, we need the presence of Christ. We need Christ more than we need our next breath, more than we need the next beat of our heart. And so we appeal to you today, O oh God, that you would be gracious and, and uh, that you would love us and that you would send Christ to be with us through the Word being preached and through the Spirit ministering that Word to our minds and our hearts as we listen over the next few minutes. God, I confess to you that I am weak. I confess to you that I am not capable of doing what needs to be done, and that is the feeding of your lambs, the the feeding of your sheep and tending and caring for your flock. I cannot do that without the help of the Spirit and the grace of Christ this morning. And so as I stand to preach, God, as I prepare to deliver what I believe to be Uh, an exposition of your word, I pray that you would help me to stand in the strength that Christ supplies, because I have no other strength to stand in, no other grace by which to deliver this message. And so God, help me, and help me to be clear, and I pray that you would indeed take what I have, that you would bless it and multiply it, that you would feed your sheep today. God, that it would be practical for Donnie and Jeffrey and Andrew and myself as we talk about what pastors do, but God, that the church would hear and recognize that this is what they hold us accountable to and that there are parts for them to play as well. So God, communicate all that needs to be said for your glory and for the edification of this body. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're in Acts chapter 20, let's look at verse 17, and then again we'll drop down to verses 28 through 30. So uh, Luke writes there, When we had come to Jerusalem, 
The brothers received us gladly. I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why that's not reading right. Let's try this, this one. Chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then we drop down to verse 28 and we read, Pay careful attention. This is Paul addressing those elders that he were pastors that he called to himself there. And as he addresses them, he says this, Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So the first thing I want us to see here and recognize is that when we, we get to what a pastor does, we've, we've talked about again the qualifications and their character traits, there are things that need to be there and possessed by any man who would stand and, and be a, a pastor of a church, and we've covered those, but now what does the pastor do? How does he function? What are the things that he practically does for the church? And this is by no means are these four things that we'll look at this week and the next time that I preach be an exhaustive or comprehensive list, but it is a high view of things that the pastor does. And then underneath these headings, if you will, are lots of more practical uh, things that, that, that fill up the, the day and the weeks and the months that pastors serve. But one thing that we need to recognize here is that pastors, or as Paul uses the term, or Luke rather uses the term elders, must protect the flock against fierce wolves who speak twisted things. Pastors must protect the flock against fierce wolves who speak twisted things. Now some things I want us to notice here is that these wolves are an internal threat. We don't need to be super alarmed by that, but we do need to be aware uh, it, it, he tells them, look, I've been here, I've been laboring, I've been ministering, I'm leaving, I'm moving on, God's called me to other places to do other things, but here's what I know is going to happen. I know that sometime after I leave, there will be fierce wolves that, that come in among you, and they're going to do bad things, they're going to be destructive to you and to the flock. And so he's telling these pastors there in 28, pay careful attention. And so we, we need to recognize that, that wolves may come from within. So just thinking that through, that means that they may come from within this very church. We cannot rest on our laurels. We cannot sit back and suppose that because we're getting some things right now in the life of our church, that one, we're getting everything right because we're not, but two, we can't suppose that because God is here and God is blessing us and God is doing things among us, that that means that, that we've got old Satan licked and there's never going to be any problems in the future. Here's, there, here's a church planted by an apostle who receives revelation from God, who wrote two-thirds of our New Testament, and he says, even in the church that I planted, I know that there will be fierce wolves that will come in. You can't get a much stronger church than, than one planted by an apostle, I would suppose, with more faithful teaching, with, more, with better leadership, and yet Paul says that I know that not long after I leave, things are going to be troubled. Things are going to go bad, and that's, that's, we should in some sense expect that. But So we need to recognize then that we keep a level of vigilance at all times, because at any moment there could be a wolf that, would, that might arise from among this flock here. 
And we have to then, as Paul says, pay careful attention. And the, the, the main responsibility for that falls on, on Andrew and myself as pastors. And if we call Donnie and Jeffrey as pastors here, it will fall on them as well. And so you need to know as members of the church that one of the things that you're expecting from us is to be vigilant for your sake. Not to be vigilant on your, totally on your behalf, so let me, let me step into my profession for a second. One thing that I tell new hire groups that come into work is, is I care about your safety. But I promise I don't care about it as much as you do. And they kind of look at me and I say, I can't. Because I'm not where you're at every day. I'm not making the decisions that you're going to have to make. I'm here as a resource to teach you how to make safe decisions and how to do things right every day that you have to be here. And so it's, it's similar that pastors stand as a resource to help you all, and we are more than just a resource. We do lead and we do defend and we do lots of other hands-on, down-in-the-trenches kind of work, but you need to recognize that I'm not preaching to Donnie and Jeffrey and Andrew today. Not alone. I'm preaching to them a message that God has for them because they have a responsibility to do the things that we're looking at, but you have a responsibility to expect them of us. And you also have a responsibility to help pay attention to these things. You have a responsibility to hold to the truth so that you don't become one of those means by which wolves creep into the church. And so do not sit and listen to what I have to say and suppose for a moment that I'm only addressing the preachers in the room. I am addressing them chiefly, but I'm addressing you as members as well. And so I need you to hear and I need you to, to recognize this is what God says that we ought to be doing and who's going to hold us to task if not you all. We're going to try to hold each other to task. We'll try to be accountable, and we, we do have a mechanism and a means for that, but we need you all also to remember what God's charged us with and to make sure that we're doing what God's charged us to do. And so here Paul says, again, uh, these wolves may come from within. He says they will come from within, so they could come here at Union Baptist Church they could be within the association. We're a part of an association. There could be wolves that, that are at work in that association. They could be within the Southern Baptist Convention. They could be pretty much come up from anywhere. So we need to be alert. We need to be vigilant. We need to pay careful attention then. And so as pastors then, we must lead you by example. We have to know God's Word. But so do you. You must know God's Word. And you can't farm that out to me. You can't farm that out to Donnie or to Andrew or to Jeffrey or to Billy Graham or to somebody on television. You, believer in Christ, must know God's Word. How do you know if I'm, if I'm up here telling you the truth if you don't know God's Word? I could be lying. I could be giving you a, a, a bill of goods that's totally false and you will never know if I'm smooth enough and you remain ignorant. You have got to know the Word of God. And as a pastor, I have to lead you. And one of the things that I have to lead you toward is knowledge of God's Word. So let me just pause. This isn't in my notes here, but let me just pause and say that's why we do things that we do, the way that we do here. That's, not why we're, that's why we're not flashy with gimmicks and programs. We're pretty stripped down. You know, we don't have smoke and lights up here because smoke and lights don't help you to know Jesus. That's why we focus on things like community groups, spending time together around the Word of God here at church and in our homes. That's why we push family worship or devotion time. Because what you need, what your soul needs, and what your kids' souls need is the Word of God, and you, you can't get it only from me. We're going to spend about 45 minutes together here. 
That's not, a, that's not a meal for every day of the week. You have got to be able to feed yourselves from the Word of God, and I have to point you there. And so that's part of what I'm doing here today. We have to lead you to know God's Word, but you also have to know it. We have to lead you by example in loving God's Word. It's one thing to know, yeah, I've got a duty and a responsibility to God's Word. I, I ought to read it. We all feel the ought of that. Mamma always told us to be in the Word, and yeah, I feel guilty when I'm not. But we need more than just the duty-driven, I'm going to do it because I'm supposed to. We need to delight in God's Word. We need to love God's Word. And this full disclosure, that doesn't happen naturally, not even for a pastor. I don't wake up every morning and say, golly gee, I just love the Word of God today. Some days I do, and I praise God for those days. But some days I get up on Monday morning and it's like, oh, it's Monday, and i got to pray and read my Bible. And you're like that too. So we pray and we ask God to help us to love His Word, to discern the truth from His Word, and to be faithful to His Word. And I've got to do that, and you've got to do that. As pastors, we must lead by example then in standing for God's Word, even when it's unpopular and when God's Word is under attack. And that is certainly where the church stands in our culture today. The, the Word of God is disrespected by many. It's misunderstood by more. And it's misapplied by probably more than that. And so there is a deep problem in our culture and we have to stand in unpopular places and say unpopular things. And that's okay because we stand in the strength that Christ gives us. But we lead and we lead you to do the same thing. We can't make our stands for you in the workplace. We can't make our stands in your home. We can make our stand and stand with you, but you have to stand as well for the Word of God. Fourthly here, confronting and opposing error with patience and courage. That's again what we do because we know that there's a threat. We stand with you. We confront and oppose error in the church so that we can keep the wolves at bay. But we have to do that with patience. We have to do that with courage. We have to do that with grace and with gentleness. I want us to notice also from this passage here, and I need to pick up some steam, these wolves are called fierce. That's the, the adjective, the descriptor that, that Luke through Paul gives to these wolves. And that meaning for fierce is violent or cruel or unsparing. And they're also inevitable. Notice that they will come. Paul doesn't say they might come. There's a possibility. There's a certainty that there will be wolves that try to come into the flock of God and, and destroy the sheep of God and the, the fold of God, the church of God. That's going to happen. It will happen. It happens in every generation. But notice that they are violent and cruel and unsparing. So the true shepherd must protect the sheep while also preparing them for the day that the wolves do come. And that's again why I'm saying and hopefully communicating this well to you that you have to be ready because the day will come. It doesn't mean that they'll rule this church. It doesn't mean that they'll win the day and will fall apart. It means that they will attack. There will be a time when error tries to get its foot through that door. It's happened in the past. It could happen again. And so we must band together then and we as your shepherds uh, under Christ must serve in such a way as to prepare you for the inevitability of that attack from Satan, whether it be in your home or whether it be actually in this church. But they will come. They are violent and cruel and unsparing and we have to help you uh, uh, and serve you in protecting you against them. And this will require sometimes on our, on our part difficult action to be taken. We should note that these wolves may be physically and emotionally violent. They could be cruel and unsparing in, in, in like sexual predators or uh, tyrants or bullies or, or mean-spirited people. It could be outward physical kinds of, of acts of cruelty or violence. 
Often it's not. There are some ministries that are known for those kinds of things, and we've recently heard of some that have fallen apart, uh, and, and, you know, and we know that that's true, but often it's, it's spiritual violence. And I think mainly that's what Paul's getting at here. It's not that they're walking in with billy clubs ready to pop some people. It's that they're, they come in under the guise of Christianity and what they teach and preach and how they function in their role as pastor is cruel and violent and, and uh, it's tyrannical. They're committed to an evil lifestyle. They're committed to doctrinal lies and their ministries then are spiritually violent. These individuals wound families they, they wound individuals, they ruin families, they destroy churches, and because of their ministry, notice the air quotes again, souls are lost. And so Paul's warning against that, and we have to be vigilant for that, because they're probably not going to come in being outwardly mean, but what's the scope and the tone and the focus, the, the, the fruit rather of their ministry? What's it doing to your soul? Is it, is it bringing you closer to Christ, or is it actually subtly getting you away from Christ, calling you out from the herd into error somewhere. Notice that these wolves speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That flows right out of what I'm just getting at there. They're subtly, they're focused, they take your focus off of Christ, off of the Word of God, and they divert your attention by degree until it's on them, their authority, their teaching, their interpretation. Their speculation about God's Word. And they, they, they call people off to follow them, to make much of themselves. Here, twisted means distorted, perverted, corrupted, and even misinterpreted. So they swerve from, as Jude would say, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So let me just plug here. We're doing Sunday school. We're going through the 1689. That's why to have, it, it's good to have the right kind of tradition. It's good to have a history that goes back farther than your grandparents in, in the church to understand where the church has been and what the church has taught and what the church has believed from generation to generation so that when the wolves come in, we've got sort of the, the, the fence to keep us safe. We're within the fold and, and they're, trying to, they're trying to pull us over here into other places, but we're like, wait a minute, no, because that doesn't pass the sniff test of history. You're, you're asking me to believe what the church has never believed or taught before. Or I know that my church history well enough to know that you're asking me to believe what heretical sects have believed before. I'm not following you there. So it's good to have, it's good to be plugged in and know what we're doing here right now, but it's even better to know what the church has taught and believed throughout the, the ages to protect as the wolves try to pull us off to one side or to the other. So we need our creeds. We need our confessions. We need to know the, what the, that one faith that Jude says was handed down in his day and we deliver it again and we deliver it again and we deliver it again in successive generations so that we've got the truth of God and we don't depart from it. Since these wolves are not servants of Christ, they're only outwardly professing to be, it's impossible for them to lead people to Christ. That's why the ministry winds up being spiritually violent and cruel and oppressive because they're not plugged into the life-giving head and they have no life to give to the people. They're not of Christ and so they cannot lead you to Christ. The idea is that these individuals willfully, this, these people, these wolves are willful distorters, willful perverters and corrupters of the gospel. These are sort of the folks that get it wrong on purpose. They don't like the authority of the Word. They don't like that the, the, the Word calls this a sin or that a sin or requires this of us. And so they, they bristle 
And they resist and they say, not for me. No, I will not submit to that. And they go off and they start a little teaching on their pet doctrine because they hate the authority of God's Word. And so they willfully distort, pervert, and corrupt the Gospel because inwardly these wolves are wicked. But this leads to our next sub-point. We've got to protect you against the wolves and you have to be vigilant and aware, but as pastors, uh, we must protect the flock against false teachers. You might be saying, well, wait a minute. What's the difference in a, a fierce wolf and a false teacher? Aren't they relatively the same thing? There's a similarity, yes. There's an overlap. But one of the problems with our generation is we're, we're just reductionistic. We've been taught that if there's similarity, you just collapse both categories down into one thing and you call it all the same. Well, that's not very discerning or very wise. Yes, there's overlap, but they're not entirely the same. So I made the point to say that these fierce wolves are willful distorters of the truth. They hate the truth. They hate the authority of God. They've got a point at which they bristle. They will not submit, and they mean not to submit. A false teacher may not have that level of, of uh, intentionality. A false teacher can be false. They can be telling you something that's wrong, but they could be the person from good intentions telling you what's wrong. A fierce wolf has no good intention. It says that they're trying to get people to follow them. That's not a good intention. A false teacher may be well-intentioned, but simply mistaken, wrong, taught wrong. So it's a lesser level, but it's still very serious. And as, as a pastor, I've got to be able to see into that and help protect you from that as well. And so we think about uh, Titus chapter 1, uh, verse 5, and then verses 9 through 11, uh, when we get to this. And so Paul says there to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders or pastors in every town as I directed you. Now we drop down to verse 9. This pastor, this elder, these, these men who would lead the church must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. This is not a flattering description of these false teachers. And in some sense, we could say just about everything that we've said about the fierce wolves of these, but I'm saying that there may be a group of people within this category that it's not an outward intentional. They are just so deceived by how they were brought up, what they were taught about the Scriptures, that they're just regurgitating the lies that they've been taught. And so there could be a different degree of intentionality and, and purpose here. But they are very similar to the point we made above. All the fierce wolves that Paul spoke about were false teachers, but not all false teachers should be seen as a fierce wolf. And so we could think about what we'll touch on here in a minute. Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council is an example of that, but we will get there. I do want to say this. Notice the purpose statements that Paul gives to Titus in verses 5 and 9 and 11. So he's got two there in verse 5, and he says to, to Titus, this is why. There's a purpose statement. Titus, what I'm about to tell you has a purpose. This is why I left you in Crete. So that, well, what? So that you might appoint uh, elders. So that you might put into order everything that remains. Then he goes on again and he says, so that this pastor may be able to give sound instruction also to rebuke and correct. And then they must 
be silenced. There's, a, there's an urgency. So Paul delivers all kinds of uh, purpose statements here in what he's telling Titus to do. So this pastoral work is, is a must. It's what Paul clarifies and sets out there. These things need to take place. They must take place. In fact, the reason that I'm going around from church to church and planting and appointing elders is for this purpose. And so he's giving marching orders to every successive generation of pastor. Here's what your job description looks like. Set things in order. You need to hold to the truth. You need to know sound doctrine. You need to cling to that. And you need to, you need to stand against anyone who would contradict that internally or externally. Know the Word of God. Love the Word of God. Preach the Word of God. Pastors here were appointed, as Paul says, and one of their chief functions was to protect the flock against false teachers. So what should you expect from Andrew and myself and and perhaps Donnie and Jeffrey, you should expect us to warn you if you're going off into something that's false. If you're reading material that's junk, you should, it's not going to be comfortable, and we're going to be as gracious as possible. But there might be a day when we need to say, you know what, that's not the most helpful author for you. And let me give you some reasons why. And I would hope that you could receive that instruction with grace and that we could communicate that instruction with grace. But that means that it gets messy. That's the point that I'm trying to make. It's not just we sit here and theorize about what it looks like. In the real world, it means one of you, one of these days, is going to step into a mistake. And we're going to have to step in and say, that's a mistake. And what we want for you is to, to know that that will happen now so that when it does happen, it doesn't have to be as awkward for you. The goal is not to put you out or to make it awkward for you. We do have an obligation by Christ to warn you and to draw you back. And so we need to talk about it now so that it's not so weird when we get to that moment because it will happen. And, and in some sense, that's okay. That's part of life. That's part of the journey. But we cannot continue in error just because we enjoyed the book or we enjoyed that, that TV evangelist or whatever. There are times we have to put down those things and, and move on. And that's part of what we're called to do. By giving instruction and in sound doctrine... Uh, this is how we do that. We give instruction and sound doctrine. So we cannot do this as pastors if we do not, as Paul says, hold firm the trustworthy word as taught. So pastors are not to be doctrinal innovators. We're not changing the word of God. If we are, we're, we're wrong. We need to be called out. We need to be resisted. And that's again why you need to know what God's word says because I'm not here to make my changes and massage the text to kind of support what I want it to say. It's what it says, and I've got to find out what it means and declare to you what it means and help you apply what it means because it's got one meaning and it's been supplied by one author who is truth himself. And so we've got to find that meaning and apply that meaning to our lives. We've got to hold fast to that meaning. But So I can't be an innovator changing the Word of God and I cannot be ignorant of God's Word, and neither can you. Paul goes on to say that we have to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So let's look at some of these key phrases here. Let's, what does rebuke mean? It means to convict of sin. We, that's not a happy word. We don't like the word rebuke, and it sounds ugly, especially in our culture, because you've got your truth and I've got my truth, and we don't like confrontation. But this is where we part with, with culture. This is where we follow Jesus rather than follow the inclinations of men's heart. I'm sorry that you don't want to be confronted. I don't like to confront either necessarily, but I'll love your soul enough to do it. And I'll do it again, and I'll do it again if I have to. 
So this word, it, it is an, a sort of a harsh and ugly sounding word, but notice what it's supposed to be doing. What's the rebuke for? Not to insult you. Not to humiliate you. Not to make you feel inadequate or less than or, or underneath me. No, you're not. The, the goal of rebuke, the word means to convict of sin. Shouldn't we want that? Shouldn't every Christ-loving, uh, heavenward-bound individual in here want to know when they've got sin in their life and where it's at so that we can throw it away? So then rebuke isn't that ugly after all because its purpose is to do your soul good. The process on the outside is a little tough. Kind of like scrubbing a wound. You've got to get the dirt out so it doesn't get infected. Does it feel good? No. But is it good? Yes, it is. And that's what a rebuke is like. It's like putting that Bactaid stuff or whatever on your sore and it burns. Well, that's good because it's burning out infection. Uh, and so it's, it's harsh, but harsh for a good reason. It's like chemotherapy. It's, it kills to, to give life. And so that's the, that's the goal of a rebuke. To bring to light is another thing that it does. To show one his fault and correct it. The end product is the goal, not the confrontation, but the restoration that takes place through that but then he talks about contradicting those who, who are in error who, or who oppose sound doctrine. That means to speak against or to oppose them, to decline. Uh, these are people that, that, uh, that decline to obey the truth. So we go to those who speak against the truth, those who oppose the truth, those who are declining to obey the truth, and we give that, that, that rebuke with the goal in mind that they would recognize their sin, confess that sin, and, and get right with the Lord. And again, these measures are very personal and can be very uncomfortable. And they require much grace and much wisdom and much courage. So be praying now before we get to those points that your heart would be ready if it ever comes to me and you or Andrew and you or whatever. But pray for us as your pastors that we would be able to do this with a kindness and a gentleness and a grace and a patience that we would want extended to, to our family if, we were, if someone were dealing with sin in, in my child or my wife or my own life. <clears throat> Let's move on here to our next point. Pastors must protect the flock against doctrinal error. Pastors must, must protect the flock against doctrinal error. And again, this is similar to the wolves and false teachers. Every false teacher is a peddler of a doctrinal error, yet not every doctrinal error makes one a false teacher in the biblical sense. Here's what I have in mind there, because maybe that sounds confusing. But again, we don't want to reduce everything down and toss the baby out with the bathwater here. <clears throat> let's just say there, there's four main views of eschatology, and I'm not going to go into them all. But let's suppose one of those four main views is right. I've got my view, you've got your view, and let's just suppose now we've whittled it down and one of our two views is right. Only one of us is correct. Does that make? I'm going to assume for a second that it's my view. Does that make you a false teacher? Well, it means you're in error if there's only two options and you're on one side and I'm on the other. But it doesn't mean in the, in the purest sense, in the biblical sense, that you're a false teacher. Like we, That word comes loaded with all kinds of uh, corruption in it. And it, it does mean that you're in error if there's only two options and I've got one option and you've got the other. And so we, got, we have to be careful here that we don't just too quickly lump everybody into the same category. Or should we say that, that every Presbyterian is a false teacher because they believe that you should baptize infants and we don't as Baptists? No, we wouldn't say that. That's unkind. We would say they're wrong, 
we believe them to misinterpret the Scriptures, but we wouldn't throw that title of false teacher out there on them. We need to be more gracious than that, but we do need to recognize this is what we believe the Scriptures teach, and we think it's an error to teach otherwise. And so, we don't, again, we don't want to be too reductionistic. If there are a lot of, there's latitude within the secondary and tertiary views on Scripture that we have to have grace for one another in. If their view still falls within the realm of what we would call orthodoxy, so it's not anti-Christian to believe what they're teaching, then we can give grace and say, that's your understanding, I don't have that one, but God bless you, I love you, and you're a brother or sister in Christ. There are, however, certain things that we can't bend on. The deity of Christ, the Trinity, the way of salvation, those are non-negotiables, and we have to believe those things alike, whether we're Presbyterian or Methodist or, or Catholic or whatever, it doesn't matter. Those are first-level issues of utmost importance. But there are those secondary and third level issues that we can differ on and still be good Christian people. And so we don't want to be too quick to throw this, this label of false teacher around, but we have to confess that they exist. And we still have to resist them. So Acts chapter 15, I'm not going to read it, it's a lot of verses. It's chapter 15 verses 1 through 29. There were some people that were going out from the apostles' churches and they were, had been Jewish in their tradition before Christianity. And they're kind of confused and muddled in their thinking. And they think it's great to believe in Jesus, but you should also be circumcised and do all the Jewish things too. And they start telling churches that. I'm glad you're believing in Christ, bro, but you've got to go get circumcised. And they're upsetting churches, Gentiles in particular, that circumcision is like, no, I don't think so. Uh, never been our tradition. I'm not too eager to go do that. And so the council came together and you had the apostles that came down, you had the pastors in Jerusalem, and, and you had some Paul and Silas who were actually apostles slash evangelists coming to this meeting and they talked it over and decided, you know what, they're wrong. And they even said, these, some, of the, some have gone out from us and they're telling you things that we didn't tell them to say. You don't have to do that. And this is my summary of those verses. And so they recognized the teaching was false. They didn't, as I see it, overtly say, these guys are a blight on the church. We should boo them and hiss them and kick them out of here. But they did say what they said was not an authorized message from us. They shouldn't have said what they said. And we're sorry that we've upset you. We're sorry that they've upset you. Let's recognize the error. Let's adjust. Let's correct. And let's move forward. But I don't see them calling for, for tar and feathers. But there was a recognition. Here's the truth. Here's the error. Let's avoid the error. Let's walk in the truth. That's part of what pastors have to do. Sometimes well-intentioned but improperly taught or improperly grounded people run ahead and attempt to teach things that they don't clearly understand. And they teach error. I've done it before. I probably will do it again, heaven forbid, but it's, it's, it's likely that I'll do that again in some area at some time. And I need people that can point it out and say, you know what? Not, not so much. You kind of got that one wrong. We need those Aquilas, Aquilas and Priscillas in our life sometimes that can help us uh, handle the Word more accurately. And that's what we do. That's how we function as pastors in your life. And that's how we should function in our, our lives as pastors and brothers together in this ministry. Another thing that we need to see is that pastors must protect the flock against sin, whether it's their sin or the sin of others. So as the spiral winds tighter and tighter, we've sort of started spiraling out here with these fierce wolves, and we got into the, you know, the, the uh, false teachers and things like that, and now we're spiraling down a little closer, and this becomes a little bit more personal, because now we're talking about just sin in general, your sin and my sin, and it affects this body. It affects the church of Christ. 
There's no sin that you commit that's so private that it never hurts anybody else. That's one of the biggest lies that we believe. Well, my sin just affects me. Really? There's not a chance because it changes the way that you come to Christ on my behalf. It changes the way that you come to church. It changes the way that you worship God. And it'll change the way that you speak of God if you're protecting your sin. You don't do it in a vacuum. It's never private and it never only affects you. So we need, to, we need to see that. And as pastors then, we have to guard against the external threats, even if they pop up from within, the fierce ones, the big ones, but we've got to drill down to your level too. Where are you at with, with your heart today? Where are you at with the Word? How are you living in obedience to Christ? So the spiral gets tighter and tighter, and we drill down. We're forced to examine our own hearts. Your personal sin... My personal sin threatened this precious body of believers and we're fools if we think otherwise. Pastor's sins alone don't destroy congregations. Congregational sin destroys congregations too. Pastors must protect the local church from local sin, whether big or small. And so we see this pointed at in a couple of passages. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-15 uh, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. This is to a church and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Read between the lines, there's discord. <laughs> He's telling them to be at peace because they're not at peace. Is it, is it sinful to be at discord? Yes, it is. So Paul's dealing with the sins of a local body. He's drilling down to the personal level, the sin in the pew and he's saying it's not just the fierce wolves and the false teachers, it's you being discord with one another. We need to talk about your sin, brother. Your sin, sister. And stop thinking that it's only the fierce wolves and the false teachers that endanger this congregation. So where are you? Where's your heart? But he goes on, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Is it sinful to be idle? Yes. Encourage the faint-hearted. That may be from sin. It may be a faint-heartedness that's not from sin. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. So people are doing that. He's addressing the sin issue again. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So notice how he gets down to the pew level. What are you doing? How are you responding? Where's your heart? What sin are you cherishing? Because that puts the church at jeopardy too. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Another similar passage. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And here's what he tells Timothy to do. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Because there's sin in the church, Timothy. There are people that are bringing baggage People that are doing things wrong. People that need to be taught. People that need to be reproved. People that need to be resisted. People that need to be encouraged. And that's your job as a pastor. Do that. Do that with all patience and teaching. Our sin threatens the peace of the church. Your sin threatens the peace of the church. Leading to unruliness. And we must together confront and warn individuals within this body of the devastating effect their sin will have if they continue in it personally, and the effects on this body. The pastor's ministry then is not meant to be some biblical action movie though. My job is not to always be fighting wolves. I'm not some superhero. You're not a superhero. 
It's not to be always this, you know, we're marked by all the things we stand against. There's a place for that. I have to confront fierce wolves, but a biblical pastor, part of my job and the best part of it is being willing and able to encourage the weak and the tender-hearted in this flock. It's difficult, but it's a joy to serve the people of God. It's a joy to love you through your difficulties and your trials and your problems. And that's a grace that God has worked in my heart, and I hope He continues and strengthens that grace. But my job is not just simply to be some cape-wearing superhero that stands at the door and pops old Satan in the face when he tries to walk in. My job is to love you and to care for you and to point you to Christ who will satisfy your soul like no other. Second main point, and I'll speed up here, pastors feed the flock. Pastors feed the flock. So what does it mean to feed the flock? I think we might have some misunderstandings here. Uh, Jesus tells Peter to feed the flock. In John chapter 21, verses 15-17, through 17, Peter sinned and he sinned big. And he's broken by this sin. And he's ready to just give it up and go back to fishing. And Jesus meets him there in his dejection. And he denied Christ three times. And three times Peter look, uh, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Peter. does this three times and Peter's getting all torn up on the inside. But Christ is telling him, you're useful to me, Peter. Your sin hasn't ultimately disqualified you, Peter. You denied me three times. I'm affirming you three times, Peter. Pick yourself up. Trust in me and move forward with ministry. Feed my lambs, Peter. That's your job. That's your God-appointed task. Do that work, son. And he goes about that work. So what does that mean then? Because in some sense, God's appointed that task, I believe, to me and to Andrew and, and perhaps to Donnie and Jeffrey. This word for feed at one point means it's bosco, and it means it portrays the duty of a Christian teacher to promote in every way the spiritual welfare of the members of the church. The other word, because he says feed and he says tend, the other word tend is poimano, and it's the word that we get pastor from. He tells them to feed or to keep or to nourish, to serve, to pastor like a shepherd over sheep, the people of God, even supplying what's needed for their soul's nourishment. So this is what Christ is telling Peter to do. He's telling them to, to lead and promote the spiritual welfare of the people of God and to love them like a shepherd cares for sheep. He's putting him back into the game. He's telling him life's not over. The kingdom still needs to be built, son. I need you to work. That's a picture of what a pastor is to do. And it's a beautiful sentiment. But what is it that feeding God's precious lambs, what, what is that to feed God's precious lambs? Is it just another way of saying, uh, be nice to God's lambs? Be nice to the sheep. Visit them. Pray for them. Be patient with them. Well, it includes those things, but I don't think that's the point of what feeding the sheep means. So the first thing we need to see here is that God's Word is food. Feed my lambs. With what shall I feed them, Lord? My Word. Feed them my Word. So Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone. That's just, it's not just a loaf of bread. We're talking about physical sustenance. We don't live by the food we eat only. Why do we live? We live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He sustains us at every turn. 
We need to see past the physical into the spiritual. So when I'm going to feed the lambs of God, I'm not just doing the, the social work. That's part of it. But that's the lesser part of the importance. You can, I can take care of your hunger and you can still go to hell. But if I take care of your soul and Christ does a regenerating work through that, then you will never hunger again and you will live for eternity. So there is a deeper component than just your physical needs. And I need to care for them and love you and meet those needs. And that's why we do things like Crossroads Ministry. But that is, that is just a, a, an outward thing so that we can get to the heart. But we don't live by bread alone. We don't live by physical sustenance alone. We need the Word of God. And so 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 25-2 through 2, 2 says, "...but the Word of the Lord remains forever." And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that, it, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Well, why did I start in chapter 1 and end in chapter 2? Because there wasn't a chapter division when Peter wrote that. His reference to you were born again by the Word of God is what the spiritual milk that we're supposed to feed on is in chapter 2. We don't close it after reading the, the last part of chapter 1 and pick it up with a different thought in mind. What's the milk? It's the Word of God that we're born again by. We're supposed to feed that. And you are supposed to long for that like a, like a baby wants its mother's milk. So here Scripture is depicted as food. God's Word is depicted as food. We were not created then for mere physical existence, but to have fellowship with God. We were created, you were created, to thrive, but you will not thrive unless you thrive on the Word of God. It's necessary. Scripture is as important to our spiritual health and development as milk is for the growth and health of a newborn baby. What parent would withhold food from their child? Not a parent in their right mind. So what pastor would withhold the milk of God's Word from God's people? Not a true pastor. And that's what you ought to come expecting when you come to this church. You ought to come with the expect, expectation that we will give you the Word of God, the milk of God's Word, that we will supply you with those things that you need. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why the, the importance is around the Word of God for us and what we do. It's why we're not gimmicks and light shows. Therefore, a pastor's main task is to serve the Word of God to the people of God. This contrast between physical and spiritual food is seen clearly in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, where the deacon body was, was sort of birthed from. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. See the contrast? It's not that it's wrong to serve tables. It's that it would be wrong for men who have been appointed to, for the spiritual health of the congregation to forsake that to simply meet physical needs. So it says, they said, it's not right for us to stop preaching and serve tables. There is a real need. Therefore, they, they create this deacon body. Call for uh, some men from among yourselves to take care of this, these issues so that we can continue to focus on spiritual needs. They can focus on physical needs. There's a real need for physical food, but as we've read, we do not live by bread alone. And therefore they say it's not right then to give up the preaching of the Word for serving tables. So church, let me just say this is why we need you to volunteer. This is why, and I love that our church isn't like that, but some churches think that the pastor does it all. 
The pastor plunges the toilets, the pastor cleans the pews, the pastor puts up the marquee, the pastor prints off all the bulletins, and we just come in and we sit fat and sassy in the pew and just let him feed us and feed us and feed us, but we don't work. And I'm thankful that that's not the case here, but we want to make sure that we keep that not the case here because what we see here is that it's God's appointment of pastors to feed the sheep. Somebody else then needs to step into the vacuum and meet the physical needs to serve and to to lift up those other things that fall down because one man can't do it all. He doesn't have the time to do it all. And so we need each other. We need to volunteer. We need to serve. This is not a spectator sport. It's a participation. Pastors must labor to keep God's people in the Word and not in programs or gimmicks. It's God's Word that satisfies God's people. So we make God's Word central to all that we do. So let me ask you, do you love God's Word? If so, this is a good sign that you belong to Christ. If not, you need to ask God to change your desires. If you can't say with a straight face, I love God's Word, that is a defect. That is a problem. And we need, to, we need to recognize the inability of our own hearts to change themselves. And we need to call out to Christ to change them. But that brings me to this other point. Jesus is the bread of God that satisfies our hunger and gives us eternal life. Jesus is the bread of God that satisfies our hunger and gives us eternal life. So in John chapter 27, or chapter 6, verses 27, 35, and 57, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. So not only are the Scriptures food for the soul, but Jesus is food for the soul. And notice that eternal life is only found when we partake of Christ. So what does it mean to partake of Christ? Is it merely believing that He existed? Merely being convinced that He's the Son of God or the Savior of the world? Absolutely not. The devil believes these things. That's why John Piper says, and I think he's right here, that, it's not, that, that believing these things is not, is not enough. We must delight in the fact. Embrace that fact. Submit to Christ as the treasure and the Lord of your life by surrendering to Him. That's what it means to feed on Christ. It's not just a, yep, He was real. Yep, God sent Him to save the world. It's I treasure and delight in Him as my Savior. My Lord, the One who commands my life. The One that I gladly obey and yield to. Just as natural hunger is satisfied when we eat, so too our souls are satisfied when we partake of Christ. We no longer search for something new to fulfill us. We simply return again and again and again to have more of Jesus. It doesn't mean that you don't continue to long. It means that you don't long to fulfill that with something else, with sex and drink and and everything else. Christ is what satisfies the soul. And we come back to Him again and again and again because He's the only sure satisfaction that we find. So a faithful pastor makes the Word of God central to his life and ministry in the church. However, he's not satisfied simply by lecturing about the Word of God. His desire and my desire as a pastor is to help you see and savor Jesus Christ. 
I want you to find Him on every page of Scripture. I want you to meet Him every day in prayer. I want you to know Him and to love Him and surrender to Him and to follow Him. And that brings me to my last and and briefest point. Obedience to God satisfies the soul. So when we talk about feeding the sheep, I need to help you to, to feed on the Word of God. You need to have daily intake of God's Word, but you need to go past just the words and see the Savior that those words portray. And you need to not just have some sentimental, sappy love for Jesus. You need to obey Him because He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be trusted in. He is worthy to be followed with the whole heart. John 4.34, Jesus says this, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And if Jesus found it good and necessary and nourishment to His soul to obey God the Father, then how could we suppose that there is not a component of our satisfaction and our joy and our spiritual sustenance and growth in Christ that that wouldn't require us to obey Him? So it's not enough to to read the Bible. It's not enough to, to love Jesus with some sentimental kind of love. We must go all the way if we would have full joy. We must obey our Lord. He found strength. He found substance in following God to the T and obeying joyfully. We must do the same. So our final point here is often overlooked step, but the task of the pastor is not complete until God's people come to the Word to find Jesus and then commit themselves to that Jesus to obey all that He commands. In fact, your joy as a believer is incomplete until you've learned to obey Christ in everything that God commands of you to do. You need to know that God created you for His glory. That's your purpose, to glorify Him in all that you think and do. Do we do that? Not perfectly. But that means then, if we were created for God's glory, it's only by learning to live for that glory that we maximize our joy. It's the only way we find true meaning and purpose in life. It's the only place we'll find lasting contentment and fulfillment. So as pastors, we're called to love and care for God's people. We do that best by pointing you to the only one who will truly satisfy your soul. Therefore, a faithful pastor is a pastor that strives week in and week out to put Christ in front of the people. Christ only. Christ always. So, To my fellow pastors, are these the goals of your ministry and focus? Is this what you desire to do? Because it needs to be. I have to ask myself the same thing, and this, brothers, is what we hold ourselves accountable to. This is the goal. This is what we are here for. This is why we do the job, to make much of Christ among the people of Christ. So to my friends and the saints here at UBC, is your soul satisfied? Or are you unsettled this morning? Do you have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ? Are you living consistently with your Christian profession of faith? Because you can't have peace with Christ. You can't have peace with God, rather, when you're at odds with the Prince of Peace by a sinful lifestyle. I'm not advocating sinless perfection, but if you are knowingly and willfully choosing to live in sin, you don't have true peace with God because you're at odds, you're at war with the Prince of Peace. 
Lay down your weapons. Lay down your resistance. Surrender your heart to Christ today. Your soul cannot be satisfied when you're avoiding the means of grace that we've talked about. If, you don't, if you're not in the Word, your soul can't be fully satisfied. If you don't treasure Christ, your soul cannot be fully satisfied. So will you acknowledge your sins today? Will you repent of those sins, turning from them, leaving them in the past, and replace those sins as best you can with the Word of God, with the Son of God, with obedience to God? Well, I know you can't. So here's what you can do. This is what I close with. Ask God to change your desires and to help you pursue what your soul truly needs, and that is obedience to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, as we conclude this message today, I want to thank you for the Word. I want to thank you for the help of the Spirit in being able to deliver this Word. Now I pray to the Spirit that you would work and apply this Word faithfully and effectively, that you would use this to strengthen and feed and nourish your sheep, and that you would draw sinners out of sin to Christ this morning. That you would bring new life, new hope, and that you would help us to learn as pastors how to walk in this calling that we've been given to, to uh, protect your sheep and to feed your sheep, and that we would see past just doing church, but truly working to get our people in the Word and to see Christ and love Christ and to obey Christ. And I pray, O oh God, that you would work in our hearts to change our desires because they are not always what they ought to be. We are prone to wander just as the hymn says. And so we ask that you would seal our hearts to your glorious purposes. We are helpless, God, so we turn to you for your strength through Christ. Amen.